0: The scripture reading for this evening comes from Mark eleven twenty seven through twelve twelve. This is God's word. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say, From heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say, From man? For they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they began seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. So we're
1: continuing our, our, our study here of Mark's gospel. And uh, among the many central questions or themes in this book, right at the very top of the, of the list is the question Who is Jesus? His identity, and the center of gravity of the story here in uh, Mark chapter eleven, on into Mark chapter twelve, we're now in Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples have completed their journey from chapter middle of chapter eight through chapter ten. Jesus entered into Jerusalem as we looked at last week, and particularly the center of gravity of the story now focuses in around the temple. And we looked briefly at the temple. Uh, Last week, that it is the place in all of the scriptures where God said, this is where I will meet with you. Uh, It's where heaven and earth overlap. And here, as Jesus uh, is in the temple, as we come to verse 27, he has, at this point, he has gotten the attention of the religious leaders. If you look there in verse 27, Mark tells us that he came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. He has gotten their attention. And these chief priests and the scribes and the elders there, it would be quick, easy to run right past that. But Mark is being very specific there. Even though he doesn't use the term, what he's referring to there is what's called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the most powerful religious and political body in Israel. Nothing happened, especially in the temple, without their say-so, without their okay, or without their endorsement. And clearly, though, something has happened. If you look in verse 28, and when they come to Jesus, they say to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And... At the very least, when they come to Jesus and say, who, who are you? What, what are these things you're doing? What, what do they have in mind? They have in mind, in particular, what we looked at last week when Jesus, after having gone into the temple, first of all, looks around and then leaves and comes back. And the second time in the temple, he begins to overturn tables. He begins to drive out money changers. The temple had become... A mall, it had become a marketplace. It had ceased to be what it was intended to be. And the religious leaders have obviously heard about this. And they come to Jesus essentially saying, Who do you think you are? What makes you think you can come into God's house and do what you're doing? So the stakes are, are incredibly high right here. Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's the Passover week, and as we know from the rest of the story, his days are numbered. This is the last week of his life, and he has come to take on the locus of human authority in God's name. And so what does he do here? How does he respond to this challenge to his own authority by the religious leaders? I think this is how he, he what he has for us in this passage. He gives us a claim of ultimate authority, which threatens our independence, but ultimately leads to a promise of grace. He gives us a claim here of ultimate authority, but it's a claim that does threaten our own independence. But ultimately, he leads us to a promise of grace. So first let's look here. At a claim, his claim of authority. Look with me in uh, verse 29. After the religious leaders come to Jesus and ask him, what do you think you're doing? Who who are you? Jesus says to them, I'll ask you a question. And this is not only, I think, Jesus uh, turning the tables on the religious leaders and saying, essentially, I did not come for you to question my authority, I have come to question your authority. Not only do I think that's the case, but this is also what rabbis did. <laughs> they would ask a question, and then another rabbi would answer with a question, and they would go back and forth on their, on their debates. But Jesus asks them about John the Baptist. He says, tell me, do you think that John the Baptist, that his baptism was from heaven, or was it from man? Is John's baptism, was that something that God was behind or did, did he just make it up? And you read here their, their dialogue between one another about, well, what would happen if they say it's from heaven or if they say it's from man? But what I want you to think about for a moment is why, why does Jesus, in response to their question, why does he bring up John the Baptist? And the reason is because if you were to go back and, and we had time to go back and look He's taking us back to the very first chapter of Mark's Gospel. And if they were to answer this question according to how things fell out and what John did, they would have their answer because the central role of John the Baptist was to prepare the way for Jesus. And so when he refers to John's baptism, he's asking these religious leaders to look at Do you not remember what happened when John the Baptist baptized me? The heavens opened, and a voice from heaven declared, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And it was public. John the Baptist did not do what he did in private. Mark tells us that people came from all over Judea to come and see John the Baptist. And so the fact that the religious leaders here are reluctant to answer what actually happened gives us some insight into their own hearts, which we'll continue to look at here in a moment. But Jesus, he doesn't just bring up John the Baptist, he also goes on later in in the first part of chapter 12 to tell them this parable, as if, in case they didn't get it. And what I want you to remember here is that parables, we've looked at before, but it's been a little bit, and parables always, what they do is they allow us to see something that we would otherwise not see. And usually there's some kind of comparison in view that they help us to see. And this one here, what Jesus is doing by virtue of placing this parable right after this question about John the Baptist and John's baptism, he's drawing a comparison between John's baptism and this parable about the vineyard. And perhaps you might hear in this story in Mark 12, the echo of the passage we read in Isaiah 5. Throughout the Old Testament, the the idea of the vineyard was a metaphor for God's people. That God referred to his people as a vineyard that he tended and cared for, that he made it, that he owns it, he takes care of it. And yet, even in Isaiah chapter 5, we read that it produced wild grapes, that it was not a good vineyard. It didn't respond the way that it should have. And Jesus picks up on that metaphor here with this parable about the vineyard. And what Jesus is essentially saying to us by comparing his baptism, where he is declared to be God's son, in whom God is well pleased, he's comparing that with this parable So that what we could say here is that what Jesus is telling us is this, that God is my Father, that I am the Son, and that the vineyard belongs to me. That's what Jesus is trying to teach us through this parable of the vineyard with the tenants and the servants that are sent, and then the owner, the father, who ends up finally sending his beloved son only to see that the son, too, is killed and cast out of the vineyard. Jesus is telling us something about his place in God's story. Because, in fact, what we have here, if you look in in Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah talks about, uh, he calls, my servants the prophets. All of these servants that this owner is sending really, are a metaphor for all of the people that God has sent to proclaim good news, to turn his people back to him, and they are rejected. And Jesus right now is in the middle of that same situation with the religious leaders. And so he tells this parable. And Jesus is making these, he's making an ultimate claim of authority. He is saying, I am the owner of this vineyard, I am God's messenger. I am the beloved son. I am the one who speaks for God. All of God's authority, all of his purposes, they're all about me. They find their focus all in me. Now, for Jesus to make that kind of claim, to say that all authority dwells in him, in fact, he says this at the end of Matthew chapter 28, that God has given him all authority In heaven and earth, there is no greater authority. That's To make that kind of claim and to say that that claim is true for everyone is in many ways, for many people, really hard to take. Because for many in our day, it's that kind of claim that folks tend to think and believe that that's what poisons everything. Are these absolute truth claims that the Scriptures make And if we could just let go of that, then there wouldn't be so much division and there wouldn't be so much uh, conflict and there wouldn't be so much uh, oppression in the name of religion. And to some degree, there's truth in that. There's plenty of mistreatment and abuse of power in the name of religion, and it's fairly undeniable. And that's even true in the Christian church. And yet, here is Jesus making this ultimate claim of authority, And so what are we to do with that? I want you to, to think with me a little bit more here about when Jesus, when these religious leaders come and say to him again, why are you doing all these things? I want to remind you, what else has Jesus been doing? What are these things, even before this passage, that help us to see the kind of authority that Jesus has? If we were to do a quick survey of Mark's gospel so far, what we notice is that Jesus has authority to forgive sins in chapter 2. Also in chapter 2, we learn that Jesus has the authority to cleanse the unclean when he cleansed the leper. He has the authority to accept the sinners and the tax collectors, the people that the religious leaders want nothing to do with. He has the authority to come and say, I did not come to save the righteous, but sinners. We saw that he has the authority to subdue the natural world and calming the storm and feeding the 4,000 and the 5,000. And he has authority over the supernatural realm when we see him healing the demoniac in chapter 5. And closer to our passage, Jesus last week declared that he has authority to replace the temple, the very place where God dwells. And he even has authority over life and death. Now, what are we to make of that, especially in light of current difficulties with these kinds of claims? I think what we need to see here is that Jesus makes these claims so that we might be truly free. So that we might be forgiven. Forgiven so that we might be cleansed. See, Jesus here makes these absolute claims, and the answer to the problem of power and authority and its misuse isn't to do away with it entirely and to say there is no such thing. Everybody, it's, it's a free-for-all. What Jesus is saying, no, you need to come closer to me. You need to dig deeper in. You need to discover more of who I am and the kind of power and authority that I have and on whose behalf I use it. Jesus here makes this ultimate claim of authority in, in contrast to and even over against the religious leaders of his day, the most powerful figures in Judaism. So that's the claim. It's the ultimate claim. So, But what impact does this have when this claim comes right into the center of our lives? Let's look first here At how it affects the religious leaders. Notice in verse twelve, or actually verse thirty-two in chapter eleven, they're debating. The religious leaders are debating what should they say, and they say, "What if we say, if we say that John's baptism is from heaven, they won't do it because they're afraid of the people, because the people thought that John really was a prophet." Or do you go over in chapter 12, verse 12, the religious leaders were seeking to arrest Jesus, but they feared the people. Just on the very surface of it, Jesus' authority was a threat to their popularity and their influence. That Jesus' authority exposes their fear. It exposes that he has come and and the people are listening. And he is now a threat to their independence, to their vision for their lives, their status. In other words, what we could say, if you want to borrow from the imagery of the the vineyard, they were like, they're functioning like owners rather than stewards. Because what Jesus is saying when he says that God is my Father, I am His Son, and this vineyard belongs to me. Jesus is saying the temple belongs to me. He's saying these people belong to me. This land belongs to me. The, the world, everything belongs to me. And yet the religious leaders here, they're living more like owners rather than stewards, like tenants in this parable, scheming and plotting to take God's gifts rather than to use them for his glory and the good of others. But let's think for a moment about this idea of independence. What does this look like? Jesus helps us here with, gives us a metaphor. If you look in verse 10, he talks about a cornerstone. What's a cornerstone? A cornerstone is is a, it's the focal point of a building. It's, the point of the building that gives shape and integrity to everything else. And if, the, if the cornerstone is out of whack, or if it's not set correctly, everything else about the building is becomes structurally unsound. You see, in other words, what Jesus, in bringing into this story, this idea of the cornerstone, that central piece upon which everything else is built, He's given us a metaphor that describes that very center of your own life. He's given you a metaphor to think about your own heart. To ask the question, well, what is the cornerstone of your life? What is the very thing upon which you are building your life? And there are two tests, I think, that we we find here really that come up out of the religious leaders to, to begin to pinpoint, what are those cornerstones in your life? One of them is pride. In other words, look for the thing that gives you, that you look to to give you worth. What are the things in your life that if they were taken away, you would begin to think you just aren't really, you're not fully human anymore. you are now no longer worthwhile. You've lost your significance. Or perhaps look for fear in your life. What are those things in your life that you must have but you cannot get? You must have and you cannot get and you're terrified, you're afraid that you'll never be able to get them. Or flip it around, perhaps look for those things in your life that you do have and you're holding on to them for dear life. Afraid that you might lose them. Those are two tests to begin to discover where, where are the cornerstones in your life. So what Jesus is saying to us here, through this metaphor of the cornerstone, he's essentially saying to us, telling us this. He says, unless I am the cornerstone of your life, it will collapse no matter how great it is. Jesus here is telling us that unless he becomes the cornerstone of your life, it will collapse. It is a direct assault. It's a direct threat to our independence, our efforts to live independently of him and apart from him. And now you might be able to see why the religious leaders didn't didn't like Jesus so much. Because... What he's essentially saying here, when we get to the end of this parable, notice what happens. At the end of this parable, after the, the owner has sent several servants and then finally his own son, Jesus in verse 9 asks this question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And he says he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. You see, to, to put, make anything else other than Jesus the cornerstone of your life is tantamount to rejecting Jesus, which is nothing less than choosing the path of the wicked tenants in this parable. And in fact, it ends on this very blunt note of judgment. And you can see why the religious leaders were upset with him. He's giving them no option. Either you repent and turn and follow Jesus or there is judgment to come. So how do we get out of this mess? They knew he was talking about them. Does it feel like Jesus is talking about you or to you? How do we get out of this? I want you to see here, lastly, the promise of grace. Notice for a minute here the parable again Let's look at this owner. Notice what he does. He plants the vineyard. He puts a fence around it. He digs a pit. He gives it everything it needs to thrive. And then he leaves it with the tenants. And when it's time for the the grapes to become ripe and for them to, uh, to, to, to get the fruit of his vineyard, he sends a servant. And the tenants, they treat the first one they beat him and they send him away and, and, the, and the owner continues to send more servants several and after all of them are either beaten and sent away or they're killed he says I'll send my beloved son now I don't know about you but when I read this parable the owner to me seems either very callous or stupid what owner continues to send his servants and then finally his beloved son to his vineyard where there are tenants who, can, who kill everybody he sends? Now, that's how this, this reads. But what I want you to see here is notice what Jesus does. After he finishes this parable and even mentions the judgment that is to come to these wicked tenants. What does he say in verse 10? He says, have you read, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. At first, it might seem like this owner is being either callous or stupid, but Jesus tells us there's something happening here that he calls marvelous, that perhaps we don't see. And this is the story of the gospel, that instead of judgment coming, Jesus tells us about this work of God, the Lord's doing, where his chosen stone is rejected. And in his rejection, he becomes the beginning of something new upon which everything else is built. This is the story of Jesus as the beloved son. Here, this father who's not callous or stupid, but actually we get a, a picture here of, of God, of his love and his justice in sending his own son who is rejected, who is killed, who is thrown outside of the vineyard. In fact, as we'll see in a few chapters, he is cast out of the city, and he's hung on a cross, and he's crucified for sinners. Jesus is what he's telling us is, I am that beloved son that God has sent. And those who were supposed to know who I was... They they will reject me. You religious leaders, that's what you're doing. But in doing so, you will establish me as as the cornerstone of God's good news. Now, this is all part of God's plan. That's what he's doing here when he quotes from Psalm 118, which we read as part of our call to worship this morning, this evening. Now, there are a couple implications I want you to see here. That if the gospel is true, if what the gospel says is that Jesus was rejected for you, and on the basis of his life and his death on the cross, he welcomes you into God's family, that means that you are a son or a daughter. That means... Jesus is saying to us, my vineyard belongs to you. That in me, you now enjoy all the blessings of my vineyard. All the blessings of my grace. But not only that, not only do you now have all of the rights and the privileges of this vineyard, that it belongs to you every bit as much as it belongs to Jesus. That what it, that's what it means to be a child of God. What it also means is that the gospel becomes the the antidote or the thing that can dissolve your pride and your fear. And the reason is because everything according to Jesus is a gift. That he has won the vineyard for you. You don't deserve it. It's all of grace. But it's promised to you. It's given to you. And he will never leave you or forsake you. See, it's this message of Jesus who's teaching us that he was rejected, though we deserve to be rejected so that we might be accepted. What he's teaching you is that you now actually have power available. There is such grace available, such devotion and faithfulness available to you in him that you can now begin to plow back into the vineyard, as it were, into other people, this kind of mercy, this kind of grace and forgiveness that he has shown you. So do you ever find yourself asking the same kinds of questions of Jesus, perhaps, that the religious leaders are asking? Do you ever find yourself asking the question, Jesus, who are you? What are you doing? What gives you the right and the authority to do what you are doing in my life right now. Have you ever found yourself in that same position? If you have, this this passage is for people just like you. Because right at the heart of the gospel is a man crucified on a cross, dying for his enemies. See, we're really no different than these religious leaders at the very depths of our heart. But Jesus tells us in this passage that he has come for people like us so that you might rest in his authority, however threatening it may feel, and thereby discover his marvelous grace through faith in him. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would work through this story between Jesus and these religious leaders and their questions and this story about the vineyard and the rejected stone that you, by your grace and in your power, all according to your plan, have made the cornerstone. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you have, you have come with great courage, with great boldness, and yet with perfect humility. In perfect patience, even to the point of suffering on the cross. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to die, even for your enemies, so that we might have hope. That though we find your authority threatening, that though we find our own independence more delightful and worthwhile than yielding to you and following after you, you have not let us go. And we ask that as we continue to to sing and to worship this evening, that you would sow that good news into our hearts and that we would be different for having met with you this evening. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.